Namo Sadanto Suchedo ye Olahudi San Miao San Putoshi Namo Sadanto Suchedo ye Olahudi San Miao San Putoshi Wu Shang Shen Shen Wei Miao Fa Bai Chien Wan Jie Nan Zao Yu Wu Jin Jian Wan De Shou Chi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. This is the 21st of November, a Saturday. We're here in Berkeley, California, and we're going to be lecturing on the Flower Dormant Sutra, the Abhatamsaka Sutra, and I hope folks will find a seat. There's plenty of seats down in the front row and nobody to sit in them, except the bold folks who just, just come right down to the front and take a seat. Um, we also have a Vietnamese translation happening in the uh, balcony, so people would like to join. And we're going to begin, as we always do, by uh, chanting the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas. You'll find that on the front cover of your text. So let's do that. Let's recite the name of the Avatamsaka Sutra. Namo Please turn in your text to page 
Does everybody have a text? 7475. We're on the second paragraph. Okay, let's start with the Chinese um, on the left-hand side. And if you, if those Chinese characters are a challenge for you, look at the the English romanization underneath and and uh, give it a try. Fuzi, Pusa Mohosa, Zhu Yu Chu Di, In Chong Zhu Fu Pusa. Okay, over to the right, disciples of the Buddha. The Bodhisattva Mahasattva, when dwelling upon this, the first ground, should, from where all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and good wise advisors are, search out and request, within this ground, the marks and fruit obtained, with no weariness or satiation, in order to accomplish the dharmas of this ground. Okay, now that's a little bit tortured English. The Chinese makes perfect sense. Um, in the translation, bless their hearts, the translators have repeated the Chinese grammar. So we have uh, English words pasted on Chinese syntax, which is okay. Um, we've done that for a long time and that's why we're revisiting this translation so we can do a better job of actually making it an English translation. So our, what we're trying to do is uh, find out what does it say and if we can succeed in that then we want to find out what does it mean. Um, what I like about, about this translation assembly is that we've got... Um, a Vietnamese translation happening for folks who are still learning English and for whom the Dharma is new and fresh as well, at least the way uh, Master Hua presented it. At the same time, we've got English language going on and trying our best to, to make sense of the text in English, which is doable because the Buddha certainly didn't speak Chinese. Right? Buddha probably didn't speak Sanskrit. Buddha spoke of what we think was called a Prakrit, which is kind of a local dialect. And we're also translating into Chinese uh, with individuals because we have folks who need to know Chinese and for whom English is a challenge and they're not Vietnamese either. So 
We've got Buddha Dharma, which is its own language, the Buddha's explanation of what he was doing. We've got the Sanskrit original behind this, making one level. We've got the Chinese that we met it in, first in Chinese. We've got uh, English translation, Vietnamese translation, as it traveled through the various cultures of the world. And there's another level of language, which is technology. The fact that this lecture is going out um, to the world through computer, the grace of computers, to folks who are not physically here in Berkeley, but who are listening all the same. And that's kind of exciting, because the what that promises is that uh, folks who... I, I regularly get emails and letters from people who say, uh, I never ever imagined that I would be listening to a Mahayana Sutra lecture in my den here in Florida, you know, or uh, every uh, every time I download your text, I listen to it in my car, and it keeps me mindful when I drive, as I go to work, and I hear that, and I hear people say, "Wow, well, here in Sao Paulo, there are no monks who lecture on sutras, so." You know, uh, we only hope we can get it into Portuguese quickly. So, because we're listening in English. So, how wonderful that through um, a lot of efforts and a lot of mindfulness and people actually taking the time to come do the 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 hookup, we can webcast online. And then having the archives, you can download at when it's convenient for you. That's especially wonderful. So, we're hoping that in the future, we had a conversation today about. Um, trying to create a regular Chinese language stream so that uh, people in China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, or wherever uh, the Chinese diaspora went out, people could also listen in Chinese. So let me say that just so people can hear it. Uh, 我们所认识华严经是中文的华严经，可是佛并没有讲中国话。啊，佛讲什么？佛是也没有讲梵文，梵文是写的。那是以后佛可能讲的一叫prakrit，那个不一定有文字啊。所以啊，我们在这里呢
依靠人家的善心来帮我们翻译，一一他的他的口讲，你的耳朵听，这样子一个人比一个人呢，将来我们希望可以啊更更圆满、更发达。So that's our wish that in the future we can have a a Chinese lecture as well. All right, let's look at our text, and then we're going to integrate it into tonight, which is a very interesting situation here at the Berkeley Monastery. It says, "Fodzi Pusa Mohasa Chu Yu Chu Di." Disciples of the Buddha, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva, when dwelling upon this, the first ground. Okay,、um, this is a chapter, one chapter of the Flower Adornment Sutra called the Ten Grounds, the Ten Stages. It's talking about a Bodhisattva, and the Bodhisattva does not have a face. The the idea is that you can put your face on this bodhisattva. This is a generic individual who could be a man, a woman, could be、uh, have Chinese features, could have Hispanic features, African features, male, female, doesn't matter. It's、um, a state of mind. The sutra is talking about a state of mind.、Uh, the bodhisattva is very dedicated to service. This bodhisattva lives to benefit others, and it's not just that rare kind of、uh, big-hearted individual. Everybody knows one or two people who's kind of who are like that. It's more than that. It's way more than that. It's not just kind of oh, that's a rare compassionate person. It's not that. It's that this bodhisattva's service comes from genuinely seeing a connection. What has happened is this person has had a transformation, whereby the self doesn't operate the way it used to. This person's values are not first and foremost to the serving their person, and just stop right there. You know, hold that thought. How rare is that? When you really get down to it, it's very, very difficult to. Be altruistic. That's that's a really good word for vocabulary. Altruistic meaning someone who's an idealist who is always working on principle. Usually, when you get down to it, we strongly identify with me, and we strongly identify with mine, me and mine. And if you're not out for me and mine, you're out for your family. I mean, duh, right? You know, isn't that obvious? Yes, we are pretty much. Or let's say you're not particularly family-oriented, but you're out for your team, company, group, race, party. We have these layers of identity that we、uh, don't much think about because it's such a given. Okay. Well, what does it take to break through that? To get to a deeper level of identity,、um, sometimes a disaster.、Um, they say "tenzaiyan ko," right? Natural disasters and human disasters. Our chancellor, Dr. Akpinar, talks about growing up in Yugoslavia, and in Yugoslavia,、um, the city of Sarajevo. Right, famous city of Sarajevo. Sarajevo was kind of like Berkeley,、uh, in that it was a multicultural place. It was the arts city. Sarajevo was where the orchestras were the finest, the museums were the best, the food was the best. And one unique thing about Sarajevo was 
that Christians and Muslims and Jews and um, within the Christian community, Catholics and Protestants and, and young and old, East and West, all live together in harmony. Sarajevo was where the Olympics were held, right? It was an Olympic city. And then she said, something changed. People started to show up and the only description for these people were bullies. They were good-for-nothing people, kind of no-account folks who had something edgy about them, something violent about them. And pretty soon, she said, within a very short time, there were mm, things in the newspaper, things on the radio, things in the air that um, tended to be divisive. Oh, you know about that group, right? Oh, remember back in 1430 when the patriot martyr Otto the Great died needlessly at the hands of those people? You know, and people go, oh yeah, I think my grandpa talked about I've forgotten that. That's true. We were wronged 400 years ago, you know. And then there would be this, you know, pretty soon it's like meetings and underground meetings. And then somebody would be beaten up or pulled down one by one by one. She describes this process of social disintegration. When names started being called, people started getting ostracized, companies, people lost their jobs because they would belong, and neighborhoods that were formerly totally in harmony started to break up. And if, you, if your girlfriend happened to be the other group, right, you had pressure to break up, you break your relationship off, and schools started to form, then people started to disappear, then politicians started to demagoguery shouting, blah, 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 blah. Sarajevo became a battleground. Sorry, in Yugoslavia, split up. And the Croats and the Muslims and the Serbs, on and on, various groups formed. And she said, Sarajevo, this incredible model city of diversity and harmony, became a place where ethnic cleansing took place. And this happened in like a very short time. So my point is to say the Bodhisattva has seen something deeper than I see. When I look at a group of people, pretty quickly I identify male, female, uh, near and far, near and cl close and distant, um, Republican, Democrat, independent, right? All these identities, rich and poor. We have all these labels and groups that we apply to human beings. Then where do we go? Sometimes we look at, oh, this is Fido. Look at Fluffy. That's dinner, right? This is an animal that I pick up and cuddle and buy food for. That's an animal that's food for me. We distinguish really clearly between near and far, friend and foe, etc. And we're all good at it. We're all really good at that. Where's the self? Big. The self is on top. Me and mine. In group, out group, right? This is the way we do it. The Bodhisattva has thoroughly 
unlearned that kind of self-serving discrimination to the point where the bodhisattva sees deeper identity, sees, for example, humanity. Or, mind you, the sutra, our sutra is so interesting. If you study the sutra for a while, if you listen to it, what you discover is a whole different way of looking at living creatures. For example, in the sutra, old and young rarely comes up. You don't hear the sutra talking about children very much or elders or middle-aged people. Sutra doesn't talk about economic status at all. You don't hear about poor people or rich people or privileged and like underclass. doesn't pop up in the sutra. That's not a category the sutra talks about. What does the Bodhisattva talk about? Sutra talks about all the time wise people and living beings. And who are the wise people? Those are the people who have gone beyond me and mine. They've actually gone beyond this lifetime into seeing a continuation of moving towards awakening or moving towards ignorance. And living beings are piling on the ignorance. We're getting attached to stuff more than before. We're being pushed around by desires more than before. Sages, wise people, are reducing desires, lightening up attachment, moving towards seeing deeply the connection between all creatures. So that's what the sutra does. That's the sutra's categories. Pretty much sages, shengren, and that would include wise people, and fanfu, zhongsheng, living beings. That's, that's the only like division that the sutra is really interested in. And it talks a lot about shangun, goodness. People who have more goodness or less goodness. And it's always encouraging us towards more shangun, more goodness, good qualities, and more gongda, merit. So those are the things the sutra looks at. And it's not because like the sutra is skimming over the top. It's focused right down into the hearts, the thoughts of living beings and the thoughts of bodhisattvas. I mean, it's not that it's like, you know, sui bien, kind of careless. It's not. It says, here are living beings. Here are the thoughts that make living beings. Here are bodhisattvas. Here are the thoughts that make bodhisattvas. You're free to choose. One is involved with more suffering. One is involved with more insight, more freedom, liberation. So that's, I think that's really interesting to look at this text and say, how does it look at us? Where am I in this continuum of living being. So, what are we talking about? We're talking about bodhisattvas. What are they like, these awakened beings? What are their thoughts like? What do they do? What do their voices sound like? Right? This is what the sutra tells us. So, here is a bodhisattva mahasattva who is dwelling upon this, the first ground. And first ground is the name of the chapter we've been looking at. And it's called the ground of happiness. So we've been hearing about this bodhisattva who knows how to get happy and what, what that happiness does and how to sustain it. Further, how to make that happiness go, go beyond his own experience to others. This bodhisattva should, there should be a comma there. Let's go on down. Should what? 
should search out and request the marks and fruit obtained and never get tired of it. What is that? What is marks and fruit obtained? That's, this is Buddhist jargon, right? This is technical talk. This says bodhisattvas ought to go to find people who are wise and ask them about the first ground. What's it look like and how do you learn it? Marks here means appearance. How do you know what the first ground is like? And what does it say? Uh, it says, You want to know what it looks like. And when you, when you get there, what do you get? What's it all about? Do that and don't get tired of it, says the sutra. It says, go do that. Um, important line is, Go to where the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and good teachers are. It says, uh, should from where all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and good wise are. That's Chinese syntax. That's Chinese language, actually, with English words on it. So we got to massage it a little bit. It says, when the Bodhisattva is on the first ground, he should go find wise people, ask them about the first ground, and... Don't be tired. Do it without satiation in order to what? Here's why you should do that. In order to master the fa of this ground, the dharmas. In order to, to learn the dharmas, meaning the techniques, the, the wherewithal. Learn all about this ground so that you can chengjiu, so you can Master it. Say it another way. Sutra says a bodhisattva at this point should go learn all about the first ground from people who know it inside and out and master all the techniques of that. Okay? So go study. That's what it's saying. Find somebody who knows about the first ground and study, ask them everything about it. What does it look like? How do you master it? And don't get tired. Ask until they send you away. Ask until they're tired. You know, and then, then send them an email to say, this is what I heard you say. Am I right? Would you please correct it? All right, all right. Sure. Okay. So, here we have um, a bodhisattva. You can put your face on it. And we've got a teacher. The teacher identified our Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and Shanjushri, good, good teachers, good wise advisors. Who would that be? Well, I would like to point out that in the middle of our Buddha hall tonight, we have an amazing musical instrument sitting right in front of me. I'm looking directly at a nine-foot Hamburg Steinway concert grand piano. This is a big, big object. It's very beautiful. It's very uh, highly polished, black ebony. And it's nine feet long. This is the... I guess there's, there are larger pianos. There's one called the Fazioli that's made in Italy that's bigger yet. That's 11 feet. But by and large, if you go to uh, any concert hall in the country, this is the instrument you're going to see for the soloist to come and play. And the reason 
why this um, piano is here in the middle of the Buddha Hall is because tomorrow there's a concert. And I might say, all of you are invited. Uh, please do consider coming to listen at 3.30 tomorrow afternoon, Sunday, 22nd, to Gwyneth Chun, Chun Yixiang, uh, come and play piano. And I introduce this topic now because she is one who has done what the sutra says. I just want to tell that story because it's, you know, talk about a 900-pound elephant in the middle of the room. We have a 1,000-pound piano right in the middle of the room. Um, it's a wonderful musical instrument. So why does this happen to be here? Well, um, the story goes that I was down in Berlingame at International Translation Institute, ITI, on one night in 1992, 93. And the phone rang, and it was Master Hua. It was Shifu calling from upstairs. And he said, did you hear about the pianist? And I said, no, Shifu. He said, you should find out. He said, talk about sincere. She said, she makes all of you look like lazy bums. No, insincere people. No, Shifu, I didn't know about her. Well, he said, there's an article in the newspaper. And I just came back from L.A., and I should tell you what happened. He said, there is this pianist who was competing in a competition in L.A. for the largest prize ever given for solo piano competition, a $100,000 prize. And he said, Sherpa said, she was the only woman to make it to the last eight. She was the only Asian to make it that far and she's the youngest of all the competitors that originally were 400 turns out and then I found out more and I'll fill in the details here and then I'll go back to Shurfu's conversation turns out that there is a famous pianist also a Croatian interestingly enough we were just talking about Sarajevo his name is Ivo Pogorelic and Ivo uh during the 80s and the 90s was one of the stars. He's, you know, everybody has their kind of their time of peaking. And Evo is still around, but he's not as hot as he was then because he was really the it male soloist, a Croatian, Evo Pogorelic. And he and his, uh, Evo is in a direct line from uh, Mozart and a direct line from Liszt from Franz Liszt. He's in the teaching lineage of Franz Liszt. He's like the seventh generation from Franz Liszt. His wife and teacher was the one above him. So Ivo wanted to promote new talent. So he took $100,000 and said, anybody who would like to send in a tape, record it, send it in, and we'll put you in the competition for winning a $100,000 prize. Have at it. So, ooh, all the piano academies, all the music academies, all the schools, from, mm, you know, Juilliard to the Manhattan School, on down, um, worldwide, got excited. And these tapes started showing up. 400 tapes flooded in. And 
uh, Evo and his wife and a few others listened, 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 and and cut 400 down to something like 40. Maybe Gwyneth will correct me. Uh, and 40 was pretty good. And many people thought, oh, no way. Why? The white Russian men will always win. That not white Russian as opposed to Soviet Russia. Not not white that way. Not political white, but the white meaning Caucasian Russian. The, the, the Russian men will win it because they always do. Don't bother. Wow, but then there's a new generation, the young ones, who said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll try it. Why not? Send in my tape. So uh, at that point, Gwyneth was, I think, 20, 22 or 23. And she sent in her tape. And Evo and his wife listened to it and demanded verification that, in fact, it was a woman because it sounded like a white Russian male <laughs> playing the piano. And Evo said, it was too good to be true, he said. <laughs> too good to be true. And sure enough, the radio station that, where it was recorded said, yes, 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 she's a young Taiwanese pianist. And so among the eight finalists, there was one young Taiwanese woman. And so, uh, so back to the story. So Sherfu was telling me this on the phone. And he said, when she was rehearsing, she had my picture on the piano and a picture of Di Zhang Fusa, first or Bodhisattva. And uh, because someone in L.A. where she was living had told her that uh, about Urstor Bodhisattva and she was already a vegetarian and already a Buddhist. And so she said, well, I could use some help because here she is, the youngest girl, the only woman, only Asian, etc. So she, as she rehearsed, she had these images on her piano. And when the finalists were announced, guess who won? Gwyneth Chun won the $100,000 Evo Pogorelich prize. And so the other members of the jury said, you can't give it to her. She's a woman. She's too young, they said. So in order to, now Evo, this is the kind of thing he struggled with against his whole life because he was in a similar situation earlier. And he said, well, in that case, we'll give two first prizes. And they found a young Australian man, also the same age, young guy, who uh, he was not, he was slightly older, but he was the next youngest. And so he gave two first prizes, Gwyneth Chun and this other pianist. Now this film clip is out on CNN. You can find it on YouTube of Gwyneth Chun. Her name was Edith back then. E-D-I-T-H was her English name, Chun Yixiang. And so, I said, oh, that's nice, Shurfu, hearing this on the phone. Good, that's nice. She's a Buddhist pianist. We don't have many of those, you know. Shurfu said, but that's not all. He said, why did I say she's really sincere? He said, you know what she did? The day after she won, she came to where I was at Long Beach and bowed to me and took refuge and then handed me the $100,000 check. All of it. And I said, why are you doing this? And she said, it doesn't belong to me. It wasn't my strength alone that won this prize. And I want to pass it on. So Shrifu said, could you do that? He said, and I'm... 
Shrivel, I can't play piano. I said, <laughs> so, so anyway, that was my first introduction to Gwyneth Chun. And so this is somebody pretty sincere. Um, so I thought, how interesting tonight that bodhisattvas are encouraged to go find Zhufo, Pusa, Shan Zhishu and go to wherever they are to draw near and, uh, and ask about the marks and the fruition of the grounds and then about how to cultivate those dharmas. So, um, now I'm not suggesting that Gwyneth is a first ground bodhisattva. I don't know, you know who is and who isn't, but that's pretty amazing that um, someone would uh, take refuge and make an offering like that. Most of us would think, how about 25,000, you know, <laughs> maybe 50,000, but not the whole check, handing it right over. That's pretty amazing detachment. So, um, interesting story about relative values, right? What is important? Here for the Bodhisattva, um, the emphasis is not on getting the best bargain. For most of us, to think about giving the long end of the stick to somebody else, that's called what? A loser. Right? When is the last time you willingly took the short end of the, of the bargain? You gave the profits to somebody else. Not very often. You know, I think about myself. If, I, um, if I, I'm not a very good business person, I'm, I just, people, don't, people don't think of me when money's concerned. That it's just they don't want me to touch because I always, I don't get money. I don't, I'm not good at that. But sometimes I have to go out and if I know that I've gotten a bad bargain, I feel bad. It's like I have to feel like I have to apologize to the triple jewel, you know, it's like and what is that? That's me. That's ego. That's me and mine. War and war soil, you know. And I think people rarely ever think about giving willingly taking the short end of a deal. Master Hua would call that chikui. And he would say, a real cultivator of the way, is willing to to take the short end of the deal and give the others the benefits. Not as a rule, but when it's wise and good to do so. Values. Where do we put our values. What is important? The Bodhisattva values finding people who know about cultivation and then going and asking about the Dharma. So they're always looking for teachers. They're always looking for teachers. And my guess is, you know, these Bodhisattvas are pretty clear-eyed. They don't go at random. They don't just, you know, attend every you know, today is Presbyterian Church, tomorrow is Catholic Church, the next day is a synagogue. You know, it's not like they're just doing it random like that. But when they know that there's somebody who can talk about the Dharma and help them see it more clearly, they're there. They go there. That's what it says. Bodhisattvas 
seek wisdom. They, cons- they call themselves, they consider themselves seekers of wisdom. Um, is that me? Am I a seeker of wisdom? Interesting. Um, am I a seeker of profit? Benefits? Sometimes, yeah, for sure I am. Um, why? It's because our culture teaches us to do that. We value sharp dealers. We put on TV, you know, poker tournaments, right? People who are so clever they can, because poker is a test of your skill. It's public. Anybody can enter these poker tournaments, right? Texas Hold'em, you know? And the sharp one wins, the sharpest one. And we'll watch that because why? We're geared to sharpness, making that deal, getting a little advantage. You know, that's the way our culture rewards us. The bodhisattva is distinctly countercultural, even to the point of being, you know, willing to give the benefits to others when, mind you, I have to say, footnote, when it's appropriate to do so. The bodhisattva doesn't like put all their money on the front door and at night and turn the light on, you know. Not that kind of, you know, giving the short end of the stick. But they definitely are not competing for profits all the time. Doesn't mean bodhisattvas are stupid, right? Master Shenhua, he was, he was known far and wide in San Francisco as that sharp old Chinese guy who will take that piece of that house or piece of land from you at a price you never thought you'd sell it to him for. <laughs> Sherful was famous among the realtors in San Francisco being the sharpest dealer around. He would, I'm, I would be with Sherful when he would, somebody would say, oh, Sherful, here's a, you know, city of 10,000 Buddhas, you know, this former Mendocino State Hospital. And the owner, you know, was going to sell it. And Sherful gave him a price that made him choke he went, <laughs> no way. And he said, you know, come on, get serious. You know, and then Sherpa said, oh, oh, you don't want 400000 for that? Well, how about 350 <laughs> You know, blink, 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 blink. And then the guy wound up selling it for less than that. You know, that's, I'm, that's a hypothetical figure. But he would do that to realtors. He would give them this figure that would just, they would, or, well, I remember, let's see, when was it? Um, what was the uh, uh, shoot I wish I could get the details of it uh, Shurfu at one point there was this incredible property that came up and uh, Shurfu said well he said I was on the phone and he said tell him that if he gives it to us there's tremendous benefit for him and it was a million dollar property you know tell him he should give it to us and and I went ha ha Shurfu he said did you tell him <laughs> You're serious, Shervil? He said, you know, uh, uh, we would be happy to accept it as an offering. And the realtor on the other end of the phone, it was such an outrageous comment, he actually considered it. It, uh, I could hear that the guy, before he spluttered, you know, and said, no way, 
that that idea of donating it was possible. But then his conditioning cut in, you know, and he knew that he had to talk to his supervisors and his board of directors. But for the moment, and then Shurfu knew that I, I couldn't do, I wasn't the one to convey that message, but he, him saying, give it to us, it's good for you to do that. Perf- that's a really interesting idea. At a certain level for the right person, that's the right thing to say. So, as I tell you, you know, I'm telling you two things. I'm saying the Bodhisattva is very ready to take the short end of the stick. And at the same time, they can also do biz. But they know when. They know when. And for us, by and large, where our culture tells us to always cut it to the bleeding edge. If you're a winner, you get the best deal. The Bodhisattva would say, sometimes, other times, chirkwai. And it, you're not attached to the outcome. The Bodhisattva is not attached to the outcome. Property, money, things, goods have the value that they can help us tie up wholesome connections with people. The value of any given object is not its dollars and cents price. It's how that object can help you connect with a living being who will then listen to you speak the Dharma or who will be willing to trust you and follow you if you're speaking with your person. Words are not always the best way to speak the Dharma. Bodhisattvas value stuff because stuff has the ability to bring people closer together. All right? That's the value of things. How do I know that's true? Do you take that just from me? Because the Bodhisattva has what are called si, shu, fa, four dharmas that draw people close. What are they? What are the si, shu, fa? One is kind words. Bodhisattvas speak kindly. The second is giving. Giving. Bodhisattvas give stuff. Sometimes it means giving the, the, the good bargain to the person you're bargaining with. But it often just means handing over the stuff. Food, for example, is a wonderful way to gather living beings in. Um, if I tell you that tomorrow there's going to be delicious refreshments after the concert, some of you might seriously consider bringing your little brother or your little sister, right? Because why? Chocolate at the end of the concert. You know, maybe Chopin isn't sweet enough. You want some chocolate at the end of Chopin? That works. People will come, right? I didn't want to come to Gold Mountain Monastery at all, even though my former roommate was now a monk and he was going to tell me all about the Avatamsaka Sutra. Couldn't get me there. Do you know what worked? I was cooking for myself in my efficiency apartment up, and I was tired of my food. And he said, vegetarian lunch. I'll be there. <laughs> right? Because I, I you sh- didn't want to eat my food. You know, I had enough of it. So that was what got me across the bay. It was food, finally. 
It was Buddha's birthday and there was a banquet. You know, So um, anyway, bodhisattvas used four dharmas of attraction. Kind words, giving, tong shi and li heng. Bu shi ai yu tong shi li heng si shi fa. They're called four methods of giving. One is kind words, one is giving. The, the next is called what? Collaboration, cooperation, working together. Tong shi, right? You do things with other people. You teamwork. Teamwork is a good gathering in Dharma. That is to say, you help people out. You pick up a rake when there's raking. Pick up a snow shovel when they're snoveling, shoveling snow. Pick up a bowling ball when they're going bowling. Right? You've got the extra RAM when they need to expand their, their laptop's capacity. You have the password when they need to get onto the network. And the last one is called Li Hung, which means helping out, service. Service is a really good way to bring people in. So if you can combine collaboration and service, when Suji is out sweeping streets, you go out and sweep streets with Suji. That's a good way to do it. When somebody needs a ride to yoga class, you say, oh, I've got some time, give you a lift. Right? Those are four ways of bringing people closer. And this bodhisattva is really good at that. So it's not that he or she is always taking the bad end of a deal, but they will do that and not feel that they're losers. If it is giving kind words, collaboration, and service is involved. They'll do that to bring people in. The value of stuff is in its ability to bring people together. To, vanish, to erase the differences. How does the interfaith world work? You know, you've heard about URI forever from me, United Religions Initiative. URI is this interfaith community that's grown out of 400 plus cooperation circles. How do they work? They work because of Tong Shi and Li Hung. The, the moment of URI, this interfaith vision, is that people can come together to do stuff across religious boundaries when they never, ever would before. For example, um, the vision of URI in, uh, is based upon drawing near good advisors, right? In this country, interfaith is largely Thanksgiving prayer breakfasts. There's a big interfaith moment coming up next week, right? When the church invites the local rabbi and a local priest and maybe the local imam. Since 9-11, there's been a lot more imams involved because Islam has had to open their doors to people who want to find out more. And you all come together and the rabbi does the invocation and the priest does the blessing. There's usually food and you go home feeling warm and fuzzy. It's really good. It's a really wholesome dharma. It's called interfaith. Problem is, November 27th, it's back to business as usual. You know, you've got them on your address book, but you don't see them until next year, Thanksgiving. URI 
decided to make this interfaith connection last. Daily enduring interfaith cooperation. And it's based upon like doing stuff. In America we do Thanksgiving prayer breakfasts for interfaith. When you take that vision and you put it in West Africa, lives are saved. The cooperation circles in URI that last, we get these letters and emails and stories and pictures and slideshows where they say, you know, in my village, uh, it used to be that we were told that if we talk to the other, and the other would often be Islam or sometimes Christianity, that if we talk to the other, we could be beaten up. If it was a girl, she could be killed. If she drew near the wrong, the other group, you know, and that works across both ways. Ever since two of our young people went to that conference and came back with the vision of URI, our whole village has changed. The young people brought us together because they meet to sing. They meet to feed young people. They meet to bring pencils and books into the school. And we discovered that we share more. We meet to teach each other about HIV AIDS. We meet now across religious boundaries to find clean water to drink because cholera wiped us out before. But now we find that the engineers happen to be the other group, the Muslims or the Christians, and we had to talk to them to find clean water. And you know what? They're okay. We decided to make a cooperation circle for clean water. We get these stories over and over again about Interfaith being more than just a prayer breakfast. It's a way to survive now across religious boundaries. What a wonderful advantage of the 21st century and high tech because often the internet is a way that people find each other across religious boundaries. So that's a way to draw near good advisors um, for what? Li Hung, for service and cooperation. So these dharmas, you know, the bodhisattva in our sutra is going out to find teachers. And when we think teachers, we don't always have to think about long white beard or, you know, the guy in the big hat, guy often, you know, or the woman who's got the power and the power suit, you know, teachers. doesn't have to be uh, somebody at the front of the classroom. Teachers can often be people at the breakfast table who know your ugly points and are kind enough to not tell you, but, you know, saw you grow up. Often your little sister, right, who's not afraid of you and she will tell you the truth. That can be your shandrishir. As long as these people can teach you about wisdom, can teach you about compassion, the good and wise advisor, the Shanjirsha, may not be the monk in the robe or the PhD professor, right? We don't want to think teacher is a special power group or an elite. The good and wise advisor who knows about the grounds can be, you know, a bus driver, 
can be your mom, can be homeless person. Don't stop with the outside as we look for the good and wise advisor. Okay, um, let's go on to the text here. What does it say? That's the first ground. He should also, from where all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and good wise advisors are, search out and request within the second ground the marks and fruit obtained with no weariness or cessation in order to accomplish the dharmas of that ground. She should also in that way search out and request within the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth grounds, the marks and fruit obtained with no weariness or satiation in order to accomplish the dharmas of these grounds. Okay. If you were noticing, you found uh, repetition. The first ground was all spelled out. And then the voice of the sutra, you can hear the, the literary voice of the sutra, the way this is kind of structured. It says, E, Ying also should, repeating from Buddhist bodhisattvas and good advisors, seek out and ask about Number two, right? the marks, the, the appearance, in other words, the qualities and the results of the second ground without getting tired. Keep going, keep asking, keep looking. Same sentence as above. In order to realize the ground, the, the methods of that ground, E ying third time through, same phrases to seek out and ask about the third, fourth, and up to the tenth grounds, marks and results without fatigue in order to accomplish the dharmas of those grounds. To summarize it, it says bodhisattvas should go out and look into, find out about the first, second, up to the tenth ground tirelessly what do they ask for they should ask for what it looks like what's the end point the the result and why so that you can accomplish these methods accomplish the techniques of the grounds okay does that make sense to anybody can you follow what that means what are the grounds why do you want to know about those it's bodhisattva's knowledge. You could say, let's think about doctors. Uh, today, this afternoon, I was among Chinese doctors over at the Wu School. Today was the graduation of the very first class of teachers of the second set of Dayan Qigong. That's like pretty esoteric if you don't know what that's talking about. What is that? There is a um, 
a healing technique called wild goose qigong. If you ever see it done, it looks like a dance almost. It looks like moving yoga. It looks like tai chi, but it's not tai chi. It's qigong. It looks like martial arts, only it's soft. And it's really amazing to watch somebody do Dai Yen Qigong because it takes a long time. It takes 20 minutes or more to do a set. And the, the person who's doing it imitates a wild goose. You can see the wings. They flutter, you know. They look up. They look left. They look right. And it's very graceful and balletic. And when you ask about it, what you discover is the person doing it is very precisely crossing all the body's meridians, raising the hands up to a specific height so that the, the fire points in the body get crossed with the hands, the water points, the earth, the air points, etc., etc. And the motions are imitating a wild goose. The, um, it's kind of in the metaphor of a wild goose. But in fact, what's happening is the person is invigorating all of the meridians in the body in a proper way. What is an improper exercising in the meridians of the body? Well, sitting in your armchair in front of the tube with your remote and going ka-chunk, ka-chunk, right? What are we doing? We're ka-chunking. That's our wild chunk qigong, right? Ka-chunk. We're familiar with that one, you know, and it's not very dynamic. It's called couch potato gong, you know, <laughs> right? And it's, you want it, there's a shape. You get into a shape, definitely. And there are certain accoutrements such as bowl of popcorn, can of Red Bull, you know, or Mountain Dew, and it's chunk. And we spend a lot of time in that one. That, that's one of our particular uh, postures that we know as a culture. Dayan Qigong is similarly a set of motions, but it's, it's got wisdom behind it, and it's been passed on from teacher to teacher, generation to generation. Currently, uh, Hui Liu, Shifu, uh, her name is Jiang Shimu. This is Mrs. Mrs. Jiang at the Wenwu School. And her daughters, Arlene in particular, but also Edith, are carrying on this Dayan Qigong. They have trained many, many classes of the first set of teachers who go through really rigorous training. They are now, there's a whole bunch of folks who are now empowered, authorized to go out and teach that first set. There has never been a teacher group for the second set, which is way more difficult and advanced. But Shermu and Arlene and the others have now passed on the second set to teachers. Thirteen people today got their certificates because they've been spending 11 months learning the second set of Dayan Qigong, which is way out there, esoteric. And they had uh, like pop quizzes and final exams. It's really, really rigorous because they want to set the standard high in this first group. So I was there to help present the diplomas and uh, congratulate everybody and say, Gong Xi, Gong Xi, 
you know, uh, congratulations, you really did it. It's very interesting to see this wisdom culture being passed on. The graduates are more women than men, but definitely they're both. They all tend to be over 40 years old, serious practitioners. That means they've already learned the first set of Dayan Qigong, which takes, Lok, how long does it take to learn the Dayan set? Yeah. 18 weeks. Okay. So they invested that amount of time, went through arduous training, got certified, and then they went on to learn the second set, which is rare. First group ever to do it, to be trained maybe with that set. I don't know about Taiwan. I think maybe in the world. This is the first group of teachers who have now certified to being able to teach the second set. So... How valuable is that? I have seen, in my experience, people come into the One Wu School, and I'm not paid to advertise the One Wu School, but that's the one I know. I've seen them come into the One Wu School looking very ill indeed. Bad posture, bad color, suit of just a, a purse full of medications a backpack full of medications, um, bad diet, you know, bad digestion, sick people come into that school and nine months later, the bag is emptied of medications. Their stride is firm and steady. Their gaze is strong. Their, the whites of their eyes are blue-white. They've pretty much gotten rid of their relationships by and large. Often, that's a big part of the healing is, you know, they have uh, changed ruts of all kinds and they are healthier by far because they've been studying uh, internal martial art or this healing method called Dayan Qigong. So, anyway, that's a place where people can find knowledge. If you go to one Wu and ask about the Xiang Ji De Guo, the appearances and what you get out of doing Dayan Qigong, you can find it. Now, is that the first ground knowledge of a Bodhisattva? No, but it's analogous. Right? Now, as of today, there are 13 more people who can spread out in the world and say, come and learn the second set of Dayan Qigong, I'll teach it to you. And they can't. So, this is how uh, wisdom and knowledge is passed on. How wonderful if from this lecture series that has been going on how many years now? 14 years here. There were people who said, Dharma Master, I really, really want to know how to lecture on the Avatamsaka Sutra because I think people need to know about this Dharma. Will you teach me the Xiang Ji De Guo about the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Dharma Sutra. Do you think I would say no? I'm busy. <laughs> Don't bother me, I'm checking my email. No, I wouldn't say that. I would say, really? Serious? Somebody wants to know? <clears throat> Something like that. Nobody's ever asked me that, right? Oh, well, he'll always be there. He's been doing it for 14 years. He'll probably be doing it a little longer. No hurry. No rush. You know, do I have to learn to play the guitar? <laughs> you know, can I play violin? 
So nobody's ever asked me that question, but that would be lovely. You know, I kind of look over my shoulder and I think, who else is lecturing on the Abhatamsaka Sutra? I don't see anybody. Never mind, but occasionally that keeps me up at night. So, Anyhow, so this Bodhisattva is there asking about the features, the appearances, and what you get out of uh, out of cultivating the methods of the grounds. And don't you know that the Bodhisattvas and Shanjushar, who he asks, are really ready to tell him or her about that? You bet they are. So, um, seeing as how, tomorrow I have to be on the road very, very early because there is a transmission of the Eightfold Precepts tomorrow morning. So I'm going to wind up tonight a little earlier than, than usual. Um, tomorrow at 7 o'clock, if anybody is interested in the Eightfold Precepts, I guarantee you won't be here listening to the piano concert. The Eightfold Precepts is a method of spending 24 hours. It's usually one day and one night. When you um, hold the precepts that, um, that a monk or nun holds, you do it for one day and one night. It's called the Bhagwan's idea. And it's a very interesting method whereby you say in the morning, yes, I can hold these precepts for one day and one night. Tomorrow there will also be people holding them for seven days and seven nights because tomorrow um, there will be the first opening of the Liang Bao Chan. Is that correct? The Go Sage, right? The Emperor Liang's repentance is going to be bowed, practiced at Gold Mountain, San Francisco, and at Gold Sage in San Jose. So west and south, there are monasteries who are starting the Liang Bao Chan tomorrow. And at Gold Sage, they're starting it with transmitting the Eightfold Precepts, Bhagwan's idea. So that's um, going to be happening. We've got lots of events coming uh, during Thanksgiving week. So that's happening at Gold Sage. If anybody is suddenly thinks that's something you'd like to do, you'll have to be there by probably six six thirty. Well, earlier than that, in order to sign up, if you want the Bhagwan's idea, if you want to take them, they start at seven, start the bowing, bai yuan, bowing the vows, and then seven thirty they're transmitted. Then I'll be lecturing tomorrow on the Sutra Golden Light, and then turning around and coming right back up to be here for lunch and then for our concert. So, just to let you know that's happening tomorrow. The Emperor Liang's repentance is an incredible um, 
Dharma banquet. It's seven days long. Is it ten days or seven days? Seven days. Seven. And you bow to many Buddhas and rehearse wonderful dharmas all day long. Um, that's happening at Gold Sage in San Jose and at Gold Mountain in San Francisco. Furthermore, at City of 10,000 Buddhas, on Thanksgiving Day, um, there's going to be a head shaving. People are going to leave home. And there's going to be a three, a four, san, a three-day Buddha recitation starting October, uh, starting November 26th which is um, 26 or 27? I got it right here. I can answer my own question. There's a Buddha 3, a Buddha recitation session, three days long, that begins... I have Friday the 27th. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that's 27, 28, 29. A three-day Amitabha session where you recite the name of of the Buddha of Limitless Light, who's right here behind me, for three days. Quite wonderful. So that's happening up at City of 10,000 Buddhas on starting on the day after Thanksgiving. So what that means is here at the Berkeley Monastery, I won't be here for Thanksgiving lunch. I would really like to do that, but I've, got to, I've agreed to go up to CTTB to take part in the leaving home ceremonies. So, um, I think we probably will just not do Thanksgiving meal here. You all can carry your vegetarian dharmas home. And um, what to do? Suppose you are with your relatives who are not vegetarians on Thanksgiving. My advice is don't fight. What a way to ruin Thanksgiving dinner. Sitting there grumpy and saying, other than the mashed potatoes, I don't see anything vegetarian here. Cranberry sauce. You know, don't. Don't do that. The thing to do is, if you are going, and I have been in this position because not very many of my relatives are vegetarian. Um, the fundamentalist evangelical Christians once is what I'm talking about is say, I would love to come to your Thanksgiving dinner. How kind of you to invite me. Can I bring a dish or two? I'd love to contribute to the, veg to the, to the meal. <laughs> Can I bring, you know, the, the cruelty-free dressing? Can, can I bring the salad that nothing died in? <laughs> no, you don't have to even put an edge on it like that. That's kind of... Obviously, you have an agenda, you know. Can I bring the cranberry sauce that doesn't have a face that looks back at me when I killed it? Nope. Can I bring a dessert that didn't have a mother? No. Don't say that, right? That's all edgy talk. So, truly, bring something that you can eat, that you can share. You know, what a nice thing. That's, that's a great way to get invited next year, right? And there will be somebody there who will say, 
you know, I've been thinking maybe I should cut back on my consumption of red meat. What have you got? And you say, oh, try some of this. And the best way to make vegetarians out of meat eaters is to feed them something that tastes just as good that doesn't involve killing. If vegetarian food means celery and peanut butter, nobody's going to want to switch. Right? Come up with something delicious that people really like and that doesn't involve killing. Because we all know we, nobody eats food to enjoy the killing, the blood. We eat food because of flavor and because that's what mom fed us. Mom loves me. This is what she gave me. She's not wrong. Who are you to tell me that my mom fed me wrong food? Doesn't compute, right? Food is love. Mom fed me this. Mom loves me. This is what I eat. Who are you to say, you shouldn't eat that. Get out of my face. You know, you turn people further away from being vegetarians if you are hard-edged about it and somehow imply that you're better than they are because you're your diet choice. Not a good way to spread the Dharma or make people vegetarians. Much better to say, oh, no, I, you know, I feel pretty good these days eating this. By the way, try some of this. You know, and they go, well, that's actually pretty good, right? My proof of this point is my stepfather, bless his heart, Ted, who's been gone for four years now. He would come to the Berkeley Monastery. Ted was a devoted steak eater. He traveled the world. He's been to South Africa years before I was. He's been to Korea. He's been to China. He's been everywhere. And wherever he went, gourmet eater, he would say, I like a steak. I'll just take a steak. What do you got? As long as it's steak, I'm happy. You know, he's in Bangkok, Thailand. You got any steak? You know, I like steak. I really do. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Burn it raw. It doesn't matter. I like it. I like steak, you know. And he comes to the Berkeley Monastery, you know, and he's kind of, no, I'm not hungry. That's all right. No, no. <laughs> he knows better. He can't say, got any steak? He knows the answer is no, you know. So he would, and then my mom would say, oh, Ted, you know. And he would say, all right, all right. And then he would go down the line, you know, and he would look, and you all, these are the food that you all cooked. And he would go, all right, you know, well, I'll try it, you know. If uh, Chris, uh, Chris uh, Hung Shur, is, is, if he likes it, uh, he looks all right. Probably won't die, you know. One day, doesn't matter, you know. And then he would eat it and he would go, this is his famous line, right? That's pretty good. If I could eat that every day, I wouldn't miss meat. And my mom would roll her eyes, you know. I've heard that one before, you know. But then he would take another bite and he would clean his plate and he would go, that's pretty good. And you could see it was because it was really good. But he, he had to keep his, you know, his face for meat eating. But the food was so good that it broke right through. And he would say, you know, if I ate that every day, I don't think I'd miss meat, he would say. And my mom would say, oh, Ted, you know. 
because she has to keep two kitchens because she's a vegetarian, but she had to keep me. So that's the best way to make a vegetarian is feed them something that is as good. And then bit by bit, when you get the chance, ask them how they feel. Oh, I kind of feel better. You know, I don't have that kind of ache the way I have every day when I eat all that other stuff. And then the next step is to say, what about meatless Mondays? Or one day a week? Or first and 15th? But suggest that it'd be good to, to eat a little less. You're not going to get people to give up meat overnight. doesn't happen. Try reducing one night a week. One dish per meal. Try that. Something like that. And people, bit by bit, think, that's pretty good. You know, I feel better after I reduce the amount of cholesterol and bovine growth hormone and antibiotics and growth stimulants and all that fat in my system. I feel better. And you got a start bit by bit. But if you come with a mean face and make them feel that somehow you're superior to them because of your diet choices, you have made a very unhappy meal. You have to sit there while they, you know, you, you make them righteous meat eaters. I don't want to be like you. If you eat like that and that's the way you are, who wants vegetarianism? You know, who wants to be like you? So, word to the wise. Make it a peaceful, happy Thanksgiving. And if you can bring the cranberry sauce and the meatless dressing and the great potatoes and gravy that don't involve fat in the gravy, try it. It's good. Bring, the, bring everything that doesn't involve the turkey. And you'll, people will, you'll have three or four, the young ones in the family will all try, you know, hey, I didn't, didn't have to eat all that other stuff and I feel pretty good. Right? The vegetarians after the meal will not be slumped in their chairs going, Oh, I ate too much. I can't believe I ate all that. No. It's true. Remember? The uncles always go to sleep after the meal on Thanksgiving because of the food. Okay. Enough on that. Let us um, yeah. Okay. Our topic was drawing near good advisors and I realized that a lot of the songs that I wrote have to do with just that, drawing near good advisors. Sunita and Yashodara and the wedding banquet. A lot. Okay, good stuff. Um, Let's transfer the merit and say again, um, Thanksgiving won't be here. And also, by the way, um, I had to cancel Tiant's night this coming week. I didn't want to, but I had to because of Darius. Are you? It's going to be uh, Life of the Buddha. Wow. Um, so, everyone welcome to What a great solution. Thank you. So, Tian's night is happening as always, Tuesday night, 
7.30, upstairs at the Tion's Tea Shop. On, it's called Life of the Buddha. Wow. 45-minute Life of the Buddha by BBC. Okay. Usually, the last Tuesday of every month, I'm at Tion's Tea Shop for Tea and Dharma. And because I'm going to Australia the next week, um, can't manage that. So, there will be a gathering as always, and there will be a great film. Great. And then January, I'll be... Wait, wait. I'm back on the 25th, and depending on what day that is, we could still make the last Tuesday. Anybody know? Let's take a look at December. The last Tuesday, yes, I will be there the 29th. Okay? So the next Tions is the 29th of December. Okay, questions or comments? What else do we need to know about tomorrow? Oh, ah, yeah. Let's dedicate the merit first and then say a little bit about that. same sheet that has the uh, requesting Dharma, there should be dedication of merit. Please make a wish. Send out the goodness that comes from, like the Bodhisattva, drawing near the Sutra. case the sutra is our good advisor and to come together at night to spend time um, with the triple jewel here to look at the sutra is really wholesome there's goodness there all by itself um, I found out that there's very few people lecturing on sutras in all of China tonight uh, any night so for us to open the Avatamsaka is special and you can send out that goodness any way you care to. It's your merit. So let's do that together.
We'll continue um, next week at the bottom of page 75, more about the Bodhisattva. And next Saturday, I'm going to uh, finish up the slideshow, the trip to China that we started last week. Um, We only got uh, halfway into the trip and there's a lot more pictures. We have lots and lots of photographs and stories from the recent trip to China. Uh, now tomorrow, at as at the concert, um, 